directly with the coach. Man. D20 Radio, your gamers roll. radiocom Episode 64 of the Grimdark Podcast. This is James. And this is Mike. If you're joining us for the first time, we're a podcast devoted to role playing in the 41st millennium using the gaming systems created by Fantasy Flight Games. Each episode, we cover a different system. Uh, but before we get into that, let's have a quick chat about what we've been up to. Or, well, Mike, you, you missed the show because you were stuck here in Australia while I was gallivanting around the US. Yep. What gaming have you done in the last four weeks? Um, do we include computer gaming? No. Then no. For a, for a co-host of a role-playing podcast, you, you're really not tying the party line here. Well, <laughs> you know you know what makes it difficult work. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, And we do currently, as as things stand right now, we do have plans to play tomorrow night. Yep. And I'll, I'll be honest, I mean, I haven't played in the two weeks since I recorded the last show, which was uh, during the convention in Dallas, so uh, it's not like I've had any gaming too, but at least I did game, at least I played at two conventions two weekends in a row in two different countries. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, so I'm making up for both of us there. Yeah, that's it. Okay, computer game. What are you doing? Anything exciting? Crusader Kings. Again, you dug that one out. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, crushing Europe is is just fun. But you know, I'm trying to think because like, you, you ever played Homeworld at all? Yeah. yeah. Some people did like a, a 40k overlay for Homeworld. I wonder if you could do like a sort of. Is there any modding community in, in Crusader oh, Kings? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a big one for um, Game of Thrones Crusader Kings. Okay, yeah. I wonder if you could do like a 40k Crusader Kings or something. Or... It'd probably be a di- bit difficult, but you'd be I suppose you'd be doing noble families or something. Like yeah, that's it. Yeah, in some crappy agri world, maybe. This <laughs> is a skin anyway, but yeah. yeah, it's still it's still a very odd game. It is. Yeah. All right, but yeah, computer games aside, let's talk about today's episode. This is a Black Crusade episode. We'll do our news section. Uh, for the system, I decided to talk about rites and rituals. Uh, sort of because I've been going through the various uh, specialties from the Tome of books, I've been trying to also take uh, systems and other things from those books too. And I think we've covered most of the systems in Tome of Fate because we are covering one of their specialties tonight. Uh, but I thought, okay, well, the expanded rites and rituals, let's talk about that from the main book as well. Uh, then we're going to be covering the Idolatrex Magos of Forge Pollux from Tome of Fate. Uh, we'll do our plot hooks and war gear section. For want of anything else to review, I'm going to review a 40k game I've been playing recently, which is Death Watch Enhanced Edition. Oh, yeah. Uh, then, for the discussion topic I made up today, is pretty much let's talk about atmosphere in your gaming space. So, just a gener- generic role playing topic. And don't oh, worry. Okay. Stop. Yeah, I think the audience heard your eye roll there. <laughs> <sighs> We'll cover what my okay. eye roll was about. No worries. And then we'll do our regular community section and close out the show. Okay. Okay, let's get going. Commanding knowledge, accessing Imperial archives. Let's get into the news. And once again, nothing from FFG on the role-playing lines. I'm, I'm sort of holding out till Gen Con at the moment. So another few months to sort of see if there's any, any sort of statements there. But uh, in the 40K line in general, uh, they did mention that... Uh, well, there was a, there was a piece on Enslave. It was called Enslave the Galaxy. It was a piece on the Legions of Death expansion for Conquest. Yep. That showed off a bit about the Necron Warlord, and uh, yeah, it, it seemed to have what I thought was quite a powerful ability, which is uh, in, in any battle that it's engaged in on a planet, uh, for every Necron unit that's there with it, uh, the enemies each enemy unit's hit points are reduced by one, which could literally end the battle before. It even begins as such if that reduces them all to zero. So I thought that was quite quite an extensive ability as well. And, and it was also talking about the, the mechanic they've got where they basically have a a counter for what type of uh, allied forces they can deploy. Since Necrons can basically ally with anything, but there's limits on what they can deploy on a round by round basis using this special, special uh, counter wheel as such. Yeah. So worth looking into if you're a Necron fan or just a Conquest fan in general. A whole new set of rules coming out in Legions of Death. Uh, also an announcement that Wrath of the Crusaders, which is one of the expansions for Conquest, has now been released. Uh, going on to the Games Workshop side, there's a lot of Space Marine launches to go along with the 30th anniversary of Space Marines. Yeah, they also released a new 
code, well, mini codex for Black Legion for Chaos. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, basically a new marine codex, effectively, and space or Astartes, uh, or Index Astartes Apocrypha, which I guess is sort of a a thematical book for the setting. A lot of details about the the space marines, paint uh, schemes, all that exactly. Yeah, it's popular enough that their, their collector edition sold out very quickly. Yep. But they still have the standard edition. Uh, also, I noticed in the coming suit section that they are doing box sets of Imperial Knights. Uh, it's called Renegade, and it comes with one Warden and one Paladin. Uh, and they've got these sort of kits you can buy online. Well, first off, the box set comes with some scenery too. So scenery similar to the old um, uh, Imperialist structures. Yeah, they, the old cities of death stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and they've got these um, packs you can get where you get multiple Renegade boxes which obviously comes in multiple scenery pieces, but other features too. So if you get three Renegade boxes, so that's three Wardens, three Paladins, and three sets of scenery, you also get some of those, uh, like, you know those uh, two-by-two map tiles? Yeah, the map tiles. Yeah, but these ones are like a cityscape one. Yeah. Uh, So that that, that looks pretty cool. I mean, the ones on the website are painted, which look awesome. I don't know if the ones you actually get are probably not, no. but uh, you have to paint them yourself. Yeah, but that being said, in Australian dollars, it's like well over $1,000, so... Yeah, yeah they, they all are. Um, other stuff, they've announced some more details about Blood Bowl, which will be coming out. That'll be the first one out. Yep. They've said that... Um, so, when you said the first one out, this is for the reimagined sort of... Specialist or, yeah, games specialist thing. Games It'll be thing, their yeah. first specialist game out. Next one will probably be Adeptus Titanicus, yep. which will not be a reskin of the old Epic. So it'll be new models, possibly even a new scale. Okay. Um, games of mostly just Titan versus Titan. I also had a rumour forwarded to me by our friend Matt the other day that apparently there is a Battlefleet Gothic game coming out for iOS, which is basically just the original war game rules transposed into a um, iOS format. So not not the Battlefleet Gothic PC game we discussed a couple of weeks ago, a couple of episodes ago, but actually the original tabletop rules transposed into an iOS game. Yeah, yeah, that would be pretty interesting. Yeah, so quite a bit happening with GW at the moment. Yeah. Uh, on Eternal Crusade, uh, I think probably the major change we've seen in the past fortnight is the addition of war parties. So the issue was that if you were trying to play with your friends previously and you got into the sort of the queue, you, it was random whether you would end up in the same map, on the same side, etc. Now there is a feature to basically join war parties and guarantee you'll be playing together with your friends, You know, which I think is a major addition to the game. A lot of people have been very happy to see. Yeah, so. definitely. Uh, any other news that you've come across of, of import? Anything else exciting? Not, not really. I mean, there's plenty going on with Games Workshop itself. Um, it's good to see that they've got plenty going on for once, and most of it's actually interesting, good news. So, yeah, I, I got it. When I first saw the picture of the Renegade box for the Imperial Knights, my first thought was it's another standalone board game. You know, other what they did with you know yeah. Death Watch and. Fisher Assassinorum, yeah. Fisher Assassinorum, Betrayal of Craft, new, um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But uh, no, it's, it's, just, it's miniatures for the main war game. Yeah. All right, let's get into the meat of the show. Okay. Knowledge is power. Hide it well. So let's get into a Black Crusade system. And as I mentioned in the opening of the show, I want to talk a little bit about rites and rituals. Now, this section of the book is basically tagged onto the psychic section. Yeah. So, how would you say rites and rituals are distinct from psychic powers? Anyone can do them. Yeah. Yeah. Your cornate berserker wants to summon a demon, he can do a ritual to do so. It doesn't have to be psychic. It helps, gives some advantages. But, you know, if it needs a psychic, he can just torture some poor guy in a cage and have that count. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and you don't need to buy them with experience points either. You don't have to buy them with experience This is my big downfall with rites and rituals is the fact that there's no explanation on how you get them other than a little blurb about you get them with the GM's approval. Yeah. But, I mean, I'd That's say presumably... Pretty vague. You know, it would probably be like a... Um, you'd probably say, oh, you'd have to do some sort of compact to get one. Yeah, you have, to go, you have to basically find the you know, materials. They're probably, they're probably written down somewhere and the, the appropriate yeah. castigations and symbols and... All those various things, sacrifices to be made, would all be transcribed somewhere and would have to be actually then yeah. converted over or, or understood so you actually use the ritual. Uh, but yeah, there is no XP cost for it. Uh, so as you mentioned before, uh, you don't need to be a, a psycho to use it. 
And it does also say that the advantage of rituals is that you can actually bring multiple people into the ritual as well. It's not yes. just a single person. Yeah. Now, what's in the main book is really just three summoning rituals. One for corn, one for Zinch, one for Slanesh, basically. But rituals are more than just summoning. So in the other books, uh, so starting off with Tome of Fate, and then with the other tomes there are more rituals. So what are some of the things you can imagine doing with a ritual in Black Crusade? Okay, so you've got rituals, like in Tome of Fate, just picking one at random. There's a ritual that lets you bind one of your servants. Yep. So you've purchased a minion of chaos. You want to make them always loyal. You bind them to your wheel, which sounds great. They yep. always pass every loyalty test. They do exactly what you want, no matter how suicidal. And you can look through their eyes. The downsides are they can look through your eyes, yeah. but they're always loyal, so that doesn't really matter too much. But if they get killed, there's a chance you will lose permanent willpower from the psychic shock. Yeah. And actually casting the ritual has a chance of failing and killing the person and striking you blind and doing all sorts of nasty things. So it's a dangerous ritual, but quite powerful. That's it. But also things like... Um Binding demons into oh, items, yeah, for binding example. demons into items, creating a demon engine. I think the Slanesh book has a whole bunch of curse rituals, yep. so you can curse people to always, you know, always fail at everything they do, that sort of stuff. Yeah, let's so let's start by actually breaking a ritual down into how it's laid out, and this this layout is consistent across all the books basically. So all your rituals start off with a description, which is pretty much just a a narrative concept of what the ritual is. You know, designed to do. It may have some background on how it was created, what the original intent was, how it's actually utilized now. Uh, just, you know, background of what the actual ritual is. Yep. The next part is the requirements. And I, I, I like the way they've done this here because the requirements they list in the book are both narrative and mechanical. Yes. So, you know, the requirements may involve, you know, making a willpower minus 10 roll or they may involve having to have a certain amount of corruption or having a certain amount of infamy, or it may be that you have to sacrifice a certain number of servants or you know, be in a location where a great battle has taken place or where there was you know, substantial debauchery. You know, all these various things you have to actually collect or bring together in order to make um, the, the ritual, the ritual work. work in the first place. Yeah. All right, the next part is the effect. And... If this is more than one sentence, you're probably doing it wrong. This is I, I like the fact that uh, you know the ritual to summon a, uh, a a demon, for example, the effect is demon appears. What happens from there is no longer the scope of the ritual as such. You know, it's just uh, it, it, literally, you know, okay, it's here. Now what? <laughs> so uh, I, this reminds me of you know, doing uh, Call of Cthulhu, where often you would find the ritual to summon a you know a creature from beyond was quite different to the ritual to actually control control it exactly right and just summoning it could lead to all sorts of problems as well you know so uh yeah i mean obviously when you talk about things like the ritual of uh, binding that has some more substantial stuff but a lot of the more basic rituals literally just bang this happens you know but that leads to the the next two parts first off is duration so how long is that described effect in play for you know you've summoned a demon how long will the demon actually remain there for the purposes of the uh, the ritual? How long will the binding last for? You know, how long will the demon remain bound to a piece of technology, etc., etc.? These are all parts of the effect. More importantly, I think, here is the cost. Uh, and this is what happens to the ritual performers. Whether you succeed or not, you know, there is always some cost to actually doing a ritual. Yeah. So, you know, it could be, well, I mean, the most common one really is that psychic phenomena is triggered. You know, that says, you, you know, tapping into the powers of chaos will always have some negative consequences then and there. On reality. Exactly right, yeah. Like, uh, like you say, I mean, not, not, not even the failure risk, but there is you know, risk of some harm being done to those involved in the ritual just by by being there. You know, often there'll be some sort of willpower test to avoid it. Um, a good example might be, uh, in the ritual to summon a demoness, uh, part of the cost is that the participants have to make a willpower test or else they're, they're effectively stunned for a round while they are overcome with joy and desire, basically. Yep. And in that round that they are stunned, 
they may not be able to, to you know enact the next part of the ritual or whatever to try and make the to bind the demon. to bind the demon or make make it do whatever they want as such. So yeah, you know, the, the, the cost is a very important part of the ritual. Uh, and then the last part, as you mentioned before, is the price of failure. So you know, in in this game system where you know skill rolls are low, failure is always an option. Uh, yeah, there's a chance that you will fail that that willpower test or whatever the test is required, or you bought the wrong ingredients, or someone tricked you about the ritual. And so there is going to be some mechanical and narrative drawback to yeah. The, the most common one is there's a table um, contempt. Yep. Uh, contempt of the warp, which yep. usually is what you're going to be rolling on. But there are other ones as well, specific to that ritual. Exactly right. Yeah. Yep. So I got a question for you. I you, you're you're more a favour with the system than I am because you're a system person. It mentions that. One of the sort of the key benefits of having rituals and rites in the game is it allows multiple people to to join in uh, on that ritual performance as such, not yep. just psychers. What is the benefit of having multiple performers in a ritual? The way I read it, yep. because I have to say that this system isn't as well fleshed as some of the other systems. Yeah. The way I read it, if you have five people performing the ritual, and the ritual role requires a scholastic law occult role a willpower roll and a strength check. Yeah. You get to choose the best three. Yeah. So you've got five people and one person's got massive strength and nothing else. They're doing the strength roll. Yeah. That seems to be the advantages of the system and also the fact that if there's any costs involved or potential damage, it's spread out across everyone. Yeah, well, like using one thing in the example of potentially people being stunned and not being able to enact the next part of the ritual, everybody gets that willpower roll. So hopefully at least one person passes. will pass and is able to begin enacting the next part of the ritual. You know? Yeah. So I think that one of the interesting things is when you look at using rituals in concert. You know, So you need the ritual to summon a demon followed by the ritual to bind a demon. Yeah. And you need to make sure that you're, you're able to do the binding in the time frame required during the duration that you've actually achieved during the summoning you know, while still dealing with the fact that you have a summoned but unbound demon there and then, you know, so it, it, it comes back to that whole concept of summoning and controlling, not just knowing how to, knowing how yeah. to summon. There, there are also other reasons as well. For example, say you've got two people casting the ritual. One is a follower of Zinch, one is a follower of Corn, and you're summoning a Corn demon. Yep. Having the Zinch person lead the ritual will incur extra penalties. Yeah. Even though they probably have better willpower and better... And more likely a psyker. More like a psyker and have, you know, the correct skills and talents and things to do a ritual properly. You wouldn't have them leading the ritual. You'd have the person dedicate to the same god leading it, which is another advantage. Yeah. I mean, none of these advantages are huge. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... Which I think is a good part of the system. It's quite balanced. Um, but there are some rituals that you wouldn't do as a group of people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is really a supplementary system designed specifically oh. for Black Crusade, really. It's, Definitely. It's... Another good thing about this system, another advantage of rituals overall, is the fact that you can teach them to plebs. You go to a planet and you create a little cult, teach one of them how to summon a demon. Get that knowledge that, out that, there. That can, that can only go well. It can only go to your benefit, <laughs> so long as you're not around when they try and do it. Whether it works or it doesn't is really inconsequential to you. Yeah. And, and that's another advantage to rituals as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess the other thing I like about the ritual system is that it doesn't seem to me like it would be too hard for the GM to build their own rituals. Oh, definitely. Yeah, you, you, you want to do something that's plot related, and I'll be talking about this when we talk about plot hooks as well. But, you know, you, you come up with a ritual that the group needs to learn or get access to in order to uh, p- pursue the plot that you've written, you know, and, you know, you've decided they need to achieve or get these things together first or find this location. Or... Absolutely. And just read through some of the books. There's plenty of mention in most of the Chaos books of various rituals that people have cast at various times to do things which aren't in the systems yep. that you can just make up. And... Obviously, I'm not saying, you know, create the rubric of Araman. But there are plenty of other minor things that you can do. Well, because there's no experience cost, they don't need to be, they don't need to be balanced. No. You don't have to say that because the ritual is this powerful, the cost and drawback must be this bad. Yeah. You know, th- th- there's plenty of rituals, I'm sure, that have give a very good outcome with little risk or give very little outcome with lots of risk. Yeah. And they're not all balanced to a certain XP award. The, the thing is, though, if you make a very powerful ritual like that, make sure that it's controlled 
because you have that ability as well because you're making it yeah the requirement is that it be, be cast on this particular planet at this particular time of year under these very particular circumstances which are only going to happen once every thousand years yeah it gives you the perfect outcome because that way it doesn't have to be balanced at all because it's a one-off thing yeah and there's no XP cost to it, so the players don't feel ripped off. Oh, I might spend 500 XP to learn this ritual to expand the plot. Yes. <laughs> which is, yeah, something that some other games have done in the past. Which... Definitely, that's right. So, really, that's all there is to the rituals and rites system. Uh, I, I think it's a, a neat little system that gives your group, you know, once again, more reason to be together than just the fact that we are a whole bunch of bad guys doing bad things yeah you know it, 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 it relates back to our compact it relates back to uh, what we're trying to achieve and it means that everybody can contribute something especially if you start working in, as you described there rituals that require multiple skill roles that really would benefit from having everybody present you know yeah. or, or alternatively you know have it so that one or two people need to do the ritual while the others who are more combat focused need to defend them as such so the yeah. ritual can so can the ritual take can be- place and you can also make it that rituals re- must have more than one person. Yeah. For example, the requirement of a ritual to do some slaneshi thing may require six va- sacrifices be sacrificed exactly the same time. One person can't kill six people by slitting their throats at once. It depends on how many cast mutations they have. Well, they have lots of it would arms. be very difficult. I, I suppose <laughs> they could if they made some sort of machine. Yep. <laughs> a throat slitting machine. A throat slitting machine. Um, Okay, no worries. So there you go, that's Rituals and Rights. Yep. Hopefully you find some use for it in your game system as well. All subsequent report to the Administratum for career assignment. Now it's time to have our career discussion chat. Yep. And this time around we're doing the Idolatrix Magos of Forge Pollux. Should we just call this the Imp or something like that? Or is there someone we can shorten we'll it? We'll just call it the Magos of Pollux. Okay, that'll do. Uh, all right, so first off... Uh, Tell us, why, who are they, where are they from, What are they? What, what's their shtick? Well, you see, they're idolatrous magoses <laughs> from Forge World Pollux. <laughs> I, I take it you need a little bit more yeah, than that. That's, yeah, our no, no, listeners need a bit more than that. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, okay. Um, so, Forge World Pollux, well, Forge Pollux is one of two Forge Worlds on... Sorry, it's one of two Forges on a broken-up Forge World yep. that are constantly fighting one another. They're tech priests of a sort they're obviously very very corrupted and they believe strongly in creating new wondrous demon machines and expanding the mind and using psychic devices in their creation of wondrous technology yeah i mean as far as what they offer to the the group in the screen you know in in a game of black crusade is as you said they are you know a fusion character taking in both the technology aspect of the tech priest and the psychic aspect of a basic level psyker as such. Yeah. Uh, as you mentioned, they're, they're driven towards continuous innovation and experimentation. And I think overall they would make excellent researchers. Yeah. So, you know, going back to the you know, rituals and rites, if you were looking to discover powers or such or things to try, these are the sort of characters which are heavily focused on, on that sort of aspect. Yeah. They're also excellent at doing things such as Demon weapons, um, demon engines, because they have psychic ability, as well as the technological ability to actually construct the devices, then infuse the demon into it. That's it. Okay, let's talk about their traits. Uh, They start off with Blasphemous Studies, which means they do start with a psi rating of 1 and 1d5 corruption. Uh, Their only drawback in this respect is that they can never raise their psi rating above their corruption bonus. So, you know, straight away, that you know, if they've got D5 corruption, they don't even have a corruption bonus of one. They're still at zero. So they have to get all the way to 20-plus wow. corruption in order to reach a side rating of two. They, they start off with quite a bit of corruption stuff because they're an advanced specialty anyway. Oh, they, they get, oh that's right. They get yeah. on top of that too. Yeah, so, so yeah. they're starting off around about the 20 mark for corruption. Okay. So they, so they could start... So, so they to... could push their side rating up to two, but to be honest... Yeah. With this class, I don't think you're going to be pushing their psi rating particularly high anyway. Yeah, well, they also count as bound. They're, they're, yeah. one, they're one of the few careers in Black Crusade which actually counts as bound, uh, which is going to limit how much they can push their powers by as well. Yeah. Uh, they also get the trait Necessary Modifications, which gives them the Mechanics Implants trait, 
Uh, they start the game with a good quality cybernetic, a best quality cybernetic, and the binary chatter ability. So it's not the binary chatter talent, because that talent doesn't exist in Black Crusade, but it, it basically has the same effect, which is you get plus 10 on your interaction tests to deal with services, basically. Yeah. Uh, obviously, if you were making a character here, you want to be really particular about what you put your good and best quality cybernetics into, because there's plenty of cybernetics which get no real quality benefits. Yep. So, you know, try and plan out what mechanical upgrades you want and make sure that you're picking ones at the start that they're going to get a real... Actual benefit. Exactly right. right. Yeah, you want something that's ultra rare and good when it's <laughs> good when it's best quality. Yeah, you, well, you want a good quality um, cortex implant because, yeah. you know, that gives you your unnatural intelligence and best quality has no advantage over good quality. Uh, uh, well, it can, be, it, can, it can be less obvious. Ooh. <laughs> or it can because, look really nice. Because that's <laughs> what you need as a, as a Magos of Pollux, you know. Exactly. All your tentacles and... and Cybernetics and weird robes and funny smells. Uh, I, I know that uh, when when Luke was playing our Black Crusade game, he was playing an Idolatrix Magus of Force Pollux, and he uh, ended up taking, he ended up getting the Flaming Skull mutation. So I wonder how that would go with Cortex implants. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> ah, the Flaming Skull. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, so much for anything surreptitious in that game. Yeah. Well, the best thing was he rolled up the mutation. You can modify it by your corruption, and I think he had the option of. Having either something, I think you have the option that where where everything everyone just ignores everything about your you know yeah. your mutations as such. Yeah, yeah. So. The, the aura of normality. Or, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Or, or a flaming, flaming skull. skull. <laughs> flaming, of course. The why flaming. wouldn't I have a flaming skull? Yeah, <laughs> if that's an option. Does it give me mechanical benefit? No, but it's a flaming skull. Uh, all right, moving along. Uh, when you're actually building a uh, Dolatrix Magos, I guess characteristic wise. First off, um, intelligence, willpower, probably your two major ones. So all your raw skills, intelligence, obviously psychic powers, willpower. Um, like any character with uh, mechanical implants, uh, toughness is a good one because a lot of them will, that will affect your fatigue. Uh, I struggled for a while to think of anything else. And in the end, I decided quite unusually to recommend fellowship. Why? Uh, okay. There's, there's two reasons why. Okay. Um, one is that, as I've been mentioning a moment in skills, I thought among skills you might consider something like commerce, for example, because they could be... Traders, you know, yeah. Traders in, in, in uh, to how they get access to some of their materials. Secondly, uh, minions of chaos. If you want to have, you know, your army of servitors, yeah. and this is the problem I found with my character in our Black Crusade game that we've been playing, is that with a poor fellowship, you can't get minions, high minions of chaos, basically. That's true. That yeah. is true. So... Personally, I probably would have gone for Perception. Yeah. Because although they don't start with Cynesians, they should probably get it at some point. Yeah, definitely. That's it. All right, so moving on to skills then. So I put down um, Command as a possibility if you do want to... I mean, you can use the Command skill with Servitors. It's probably the closest skill for actually controlling Servitors. Or I think it's important them. to point out that they start off, un- they start off unaligned. Yes, that's yes. true. Yeah. So. Um, commerce, I mentioned before. Deceive, especially if you want to be sort of doing any of your research within the Imperium with or without a flaming skull uh, <laughs> interrogation I put down because it is one of their starting options and I can almost see this sort of uh, you know, methodical torture as such as a possibility here for this character to get the information that they need uh, linguistics definitely for their uh, profane researchers any of, any of the law skills you know classic law forbidden laws you know tech archaeotech Heresy, etc., etc. The war. all of the laws. Yep, yeah, that's it. Uh, logic, Medicaid. Once you know that, they're, they're probably uh, can go down the biologist path as well. Uh, you mentioned their Sinisians, definitely tech use. Probably a trade or so. You know, maybe mm-hmm. they, they like to scrimshaw in their free time. You never know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, trade armorer maybe. Armorer. That's it. Shipwright. Yep, it's true. It depends what they're building. Yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, talent wise, uh, armor monger definitely. I thought as far as psychic powers go. Maybe blasphemous incantation. Yeah. Um, I don't see because the, the the sacrificial one you need to have sentient followers, and if they're going to be using predominantly servitors, they, I, would, I wouldn't really consider a servitor to be sentient. Ah, just, just grab someone else's follower. Yeah, that's quite true. Yeah, doesn't have to be your own. Well, cold-hearted. Speaking of, you know, yeah. that's a good one. Uh, corpus conversion. I think this fits in quite. I mean, corpus conversion. You have to be a human psyche to take, and I think that sort of yeah. fits in with the weakness of the flesh. Um, Disturbing voice is always a fun one to take with tech characters. 
obviously your typical you know, ferric summons, luminance shock, maglev transcendence, all your regular mechanical mechanicus ones. Uh, infuse knowledge, yeah, definitely you know, to get yeah. access to those law skills. Uh, Master engine seer is sort of you know, built with these characters in mind. Obviously, make a dendrite use minions of chaos of all types to get your servitors and, and potentially even demon engines or the, or the like. Um, Ortho proxy so that they're harder to interrogate themselves. Yeah. Uh, polyglot. Yeah. Language bonus. Pro sanguine they can get because they've got the mechanics implants. Technical knock if you want to have a you know a shooting character and you'll have a good skill in that. Uh, warp sense. I, I stayed away from things like child of the warp. And that sort of stuff, because right? I didn't really think that was their, where their real specialty lay. No, no. Yeah. Um, to to be honest, I probably wouldn't take Psy rating above about three with a character like this. Yeah. So I think three is where you get your bonus to your rituals, which is what you want. Yeah. And anything after that, they're, they're really... It, it's not their specialty. That's true. And the last time I said was weapon tech as well. Yeah. So, uh, I guess some advice on, on playing this character... Uh, you do need to sort of realise early on that it's going to be very hard to go down the whole tech talent tree and all the law skill focus and also spend lots of point on psi rating and psychic powers. You're going to be doing one or the other. You're just not going to have enough XP to do both. Yeah, you can dabble. Feel free to dabble. Yeah, and this is the advantage of this sort of characters. You can dabble. Yeah. But you're not talking like a true Dungeons & Dragons style multi-class character. You know, this is really a... Uh, you focus on one and you dabble into the other as such. Yeah, at least, At least you've got the options with this character. And I would say... More likely with this character, you'll have a, you'll have an easier time going down the law and tech path, and with a dabble into psychic ratings and such. I'd agree with that. And, and invariably, you're going to end up in Zinch's path at some point in time. I would say. Yeah, so, probably. Yeah, uh, remember these characters have a thirst for knowledge. You know, it's, as far as playing one is concerned, this is what they're all, they're driven by constant development of their of their knowledge of their understanding of technology of the warp of demons etc and remember for them everything is part of an experiment yep. you can take this too far like Luke did in our game you know where he pretty much screwed the rest of the player characters to see what would happen yes uh, but I mean that, that the extreme as, as, a, as an exclusion I think that's still the, the fact that everything to them is some form of experiment is a, is a good thing to remember with this sort of character what sort of starting gear would you recommend with their couple of starting choices for the cybernetics no oh, for the, they get so general. many. They get so many pieces of gear equal to their corruption. Uh, oh, okay. Equal to their infamy bonus. Yeah. Which pieces would you recommend? Um, I extra cybernetics yeah, or something different. That's normally the way I, I would sort of go with. As such, it depends on. Um, like, there's a few pieces of cybernetics that I think are, are quite key that don't get a benefit from having uh, in, uh, improved quality. Mechadendrite, for an example. Yeah. So I'd certainly say that a mechadendrite, maybe utility mechadendrite, would be a good way to go at the start. I'd say go for the mechadendrites from the. Tome of uh, Decay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, the, yeah. The, the cable ones, the blade tying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. So just, just, to be, just to be cooler and more chaos-like. Well, yeah, they look awesome. Yeah. <laughs> what other reason do you need? That's it, yeah. Um, I mean, what else could you look at? They don't, they don't get a side focus on it, but a side focus is pretty easy to come by, though, in the yeah, game. Like, it's, it's, unless, unless it's you who can't roll for crap to in order to get the acquisition. Yeah, <laughs> unless you're playing someone like me who can't even get things like bloody... Data slates and sci focuses. Yeah, and what do you think? What else would you be looking at? Um, maybe armor. Yeah. It depends whether you're going to be holding the line with the other combat characters or not. Well, they, they do get a. Um, uh, they, get a they get a decent melee weapon. Like a, a power axe. Yeah, like a power axe. Magos power axe. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So, yeah. They, they could be a decent melee character if that's the way you want to go. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, so that's the Idolatrix Madros of Forge Pollux. A bit of a mouthful, but um, still a, a decent character to try it if you, if you like that sort of tech and sci focus. You don't want to yeah. you know, know which one to choose. Let's keep going. Okay. Attention, loyal servants of the Imperium. Stand by to receive orders. So, for a plot hook, I, I usually try and make the plot hook somehow relate back to one of the topics of the show, and here I've chosen the rites and rituals. So, I've got... Several factions within the Screaming Vortex are competing to get their hands on an ancient ritual which has recently been uncovered. By hook or by crook, it ends up in the hands of the Warband. Only for them to discover the exact outcome of the ritual is unknown. There is simply a legend that it will lead to great power. Will the group take the risk and enact the ritual? Will they abstain seeking further information on what will happen only to remain at threat from the others who seek to perform it first? And what is the final outcome of casting the ritual? So, this... Is, I guess around the concept of using a ritual as a MacGuffin. 
uh, as, as a focus point for the story and uh, I, I guess creating a, an element of the unknown in the game as well. So uh, it would be quite easy to say that, you know, in this tome are detailed the full extent of enacting the ritual without actually describing what happens or simply alluding towards good things happen. Yeah. Uh, and I think in some ways this is reminiscent of our own Black Crusade game where you know, we're pretty much involved in enacting a ritual, the benefit of which is we should get some nebulous concept of a, of a wish. Yeah. You know, whatever that may be. Um, yeah, it's unlikely to be an actual wish, though. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like the Knight of the Wizard spell, no? No. <laughs> what is your greatest design? No. So uh, I, I just thought this might be an interesting storyline to use uh, if you want to sort of push that the angle that the whole group is going for, especially if you know the ritual you come up with requires something on the part of all the characters, or requires has multiple steps that have to be done, you know. It, it, so find the ritual could become the focus of the campaign, or actually enacting it can become the focus of the campaign, or dealing with the consequences can become the focus of the campaign. You know, all these things are quite possible in the scope of. Um, yeah, it depends how big you want to make it. Yeah, quite yeah. true. So, any other thoughts, Mike, on that one? It's, no, I'd say that's that's pretty standard. Yeah. As I said before, if you're worried about making the ritual results too powerful, make sure that you put controlling limits in place that say that it can only be cast once or yeah. only in special circumstances. Or yeah, that's true. All right, let's keep going. Revere the Omnisia, for it is the source of all power. For the war gear today, I've got one particular for you, Mike. Yeah, so, sort of, sort of war gear. You know, so something you might possess, yeah, but not necessarily have on your person. Rubric Marines. Oh, Rubric Marines. That's it. Yeah. So tell us about Rubric Marines. Um, they're animate suits of armor filled with dust, pretty much. So, Araman and the Thousand Suns. He thought they're all mutating out of control. We need to control this. We'll stop that from happening. Unfortunately, the ritual had unintended consequences of. Reducing anyone who wasn't psychic in the Legion to dust, sealed inside their armour forever. That's okay, because their spirit still haunts the armour. Yeah. Yeah, so they're still there. They're know. still there. <laughs> and uh, various fluff things argue about certain points, and uh, the general consensus is that even if the armour gets destroyed, it can be put back together and the spirit can be resummoned. Or the spirit can be resummoned into a new set of armour. Yeah, but for the purposes of Black Crusade, the general concept is that they are, at this point in time, little more than automata, basically. Yeah. They, they follow orders given to them by sorcerers. Uh, it doesn't have to necessarily be a Thousand Sun Sorcerer, does it? No. no. Um, it is harder for a non-Thousand Sun Sorcerer, as in, for a Thousand Sun Sorcerer, it's a minion of chaos. For everyone else, it's a greater minion of chaos. Yeah. So, an extra 250 XP. Yeah, so it just costs more XP, doesn't it? It doesn't require more hard, a more difficult role, all that sort of stuff, you know. No. And how effective are they? They're very effective at what they're good at, which is walking forward and shooting things. <laughs> Need them to do much else? Not so much. Need them to run anywhere? Definitely not. You're reminding me of uh, Futurama, where the um, uh, Fry wishes that, that the world was more like a computer game. Oh, yeah. And, and the aliens invade, and the alien captain's like, you know, this strategy isn't working. Move down. Go faster. Change direction. That's <laughs> pretty much yeah. about the extent of the, the tactical guesses you can give to a uh, Rubik Marine. Rubik Marine. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, they're good at what... I mean, they are exceptionally good for a minion of chaos. Yeah. They have obviously some major downfalls. Um, but they are very good. Yeah, I mean, keeping them with you is probably one thing. Uh, you, you, probably there's not every circumstance you can go into that you can bring along a group of ribbon rings, is there? No, no. But if you can bring them along with you, yeah, you, you're going to do quite well. Yeah, that's it. So, certainly a piece of war gear to aspire towards for any psyker. Definitely. Yeah. Well, of Zinch, yes. Yes. Okay. So next part, so psyker of Zinch specifically. Yeah. Yes. So. Psyker of Zinch specifically. Okay. No worries. All right. Let's keep going. My lord, the information you requested is now available for your review. So, on to our review. And you know, we've well exhausted the Black Crusade books to review. And while there are still a few Games Workshop properties I've been recently purchasing and, and trying out, I haven't had a lot to sort of, haven't had enough chance to really get my head around them to review them yet. Yeah. Uh, so, in the meantime, I'm going to review a Games Workshop property I've been playing for some time recently. Uh, I think I've sunk in. 170 plus hours into this game according to Steam recently uh, and that is Death Watch Enhanced Edition yep 
So this was launched on Steam around October last year. I picked it up recently during the Games Workshop sale about a, I don't know, six to eight weeks ago. Yeah. And yeah, I've, I've played quite a bit of it. Now, it feels like a game made for a tablet. I don't know if it is available on tablet. It may, may, may very well be. If you've ever played sort of uh, top-down turn-based strategy games, uh, Mike, you've been playing, I think, The Walking Dead Road, yeah. Road to Survival game recently, for example, and it, it, it's it's got a very similar style to that. So effectively, the, the gameplay style is you've got a, a rotatable isometric view, uh, you've got a squad of Death Watch Marines, and uh, then you'll be on a map where there'll be a, a general goal. Now, usually one of the goals is to eliminate all enemies on the map, uh, but it may be something, for example, like get all the Marines to a particular location, hold that location for a certain amount of time, and then extract. You know, Or it could be... Because uh, the enemies in this are predominantly or, or pretty much entirely uh, Tyranids. You know, there's one mission I played, for example, where you had to go into a Tyranid-infested area and drop a chemical into all the spawning pools to basically uh, stop them from spawning any more creatures as such. Uh, so initially, most of your um, opponents in the game are going to be Gaunts. Um, then you'll start taking on actual Tyranids. And then later on, you'll deal with some of the much larger, more dangerous creatures. Uh, the game has a... The reason I think it feels very iOS-like is the fact that after you complete each level, uh, you'll get basically dealt a number of... Let's call them cards. You know, and, and those cards will be random upgrades. So better weapons, um, new marines... Um, di- di- different traits you can apply to the marines and you know, they're all random basically once, once you've got those cards they can be assigned to any of the characters or they may be a character themselves some characters have a different rarity and therefore a much higher level than other characters uh, and you can actually pay real world cash in order to buy uh, yeah. buy more cards as such you know, or buy, buy card packs yep. so there is certainly a um, a micro pay system built into the game. Now, I can tell you that in the 170 plus hours I've played, I've not spent any real world cash. Okay. And I've still enjoyed the game. I have yet to come across a mission that I couldn't defeat. So it certainly doesn't feel like the sort of game that is designed, that basically stonewalls you until you spend real money. Um, the option is there just to to do it if you want to get more, give yourself more options. Um, all the marines when they're generated basically will be a, of a particular type like an assault marine or a devastator as such they'll have a, um, uh, a chapter and they'll have a name which you can change you can name the marines yourself uh, and then yeah, within the constraints that you can then apply other weapons so you know the devastator marines all start with a basic bolter you know you might get things like you know um, art- artificer bolters or plasma cannons or las cannons that sort of stuff and uh, they can be swapped out as such same with you know, your assault marines. So and, all the chapters, are they just the standard? Uh, so I've encountered so far... Yeah, I, I'm going to say yes, because I've encountered Space Wolves, um, Dark Angels, Ultramarines... Um, I, I, I think that, I, haven't, I haven't seen Blood, I haven't seen a Blood Angel character. I mean, I might just be on... Oh, no, I have, sorry, I have. I have seen a Blood Angel character. Sorry, yes. Um, uh, but I haven't seen any things like Imperial Fists yet, or White Scars, you know, so... Um, and certainly nothing se- second succession or whatever that sort of stuff as well. Yeah. So I'd say whatever it is, and it's just main characters. But it's it's very pretty. Um, it's nicely voice acted. So all the you know you can get some great marine quotes from the various characters when they say things as such. Um, my only complaint with the game is that the fact that it's really the same opponent type it makes it a bit sort of um, repetitive, bit, bit predictable and repetitive as such. You know, so um, and. It is a, a, a game that, in some respects, rewards turtling. So when I, what I mean by turtling is literally, um, I could move my full move each turn and get up there, or I could just move a half move and go on Overwatch every single turn and get a free shot in that comes out and just take twice as long to get across the map. But you know, in most cases, there's no time limit. Um, you know, I, I, I can literally go one square at a time, shooting as I go if I want to. Jeez, uh, thousand suns so yeah, sit, yeah, move forward and shoot. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean it, it's based on an action point system, so it's not like you get a move and an attack. You know, you get a certain amount of moving, and it costs a certain amount to, to attack as well. And certain weapons require, 
you know, bigger weapons require more actions. Um, you know, pretty much if you move a devastating marine, you, you won't be able to put them on Overwatch as well. So you know, it, it's all it, it's part of his resource management, um, part of his tactics as such. You know, often I found was is there any actual storyline to it? Yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah. So what you basically is you got campaigns. Oh, okay. So a campaign will be a series of four or five missions that you know, and, and that being said, it's not like it's branching arcs. It's not like you know if you didn't do this on a certain amount of time, you'll have a different mission. It's just you progress to the next mission along each each storyline as such. So I'm not going to say the storyline is. You know the best best writing I've ever seen. As such, it's just it's you know, Marines killing genes. Yeah, that's right. You know, it, it, it's it's like it's like any number of really poor role playing games I might have seen in the past, where it's just an excuse to go from battle to battle to battle. Okay. But you know, at the end of the day, the, the battle is what's important. But no, look, I mean, I actually found the game to be quite good. I would probably give it a rating of seven and a half out of ten. Um, and, and a lot of that comes from it's very cheap as well. So it, it's a great game to dabble into. I actually found. You can get through most missions in half an hour, so it's a good game to play when you've just got a bit of bit of time to play something. Yeah. Um, I, I was mainly playing it when I put my kids to bed, and I'd stay upstairs to make sure they they were staying in bed, and I would just have a mission of Death Watch while I was waiting and such. So. Okay. Yeah. So out of all the games I bought from GW during that big sale, it's definitely the one that I've gotten the most playtime out of. So yeah. Oh, not too bad. Yeah, I, I certainly I approve. Anyway, it's got my stamp of approval. Okay. All right, let's get going. Ignorance is a blessing. The data you requested is unavailable. All right, Mike. For this uh, final discussion topic, which uh, I've entitled "Atmosphere in Your Gaming Space." Yeah. Before we get into the actual topic, so I want to give you the background as to why I chose this because okay. it, it might help explain a couple of things. Um, so, I've sort of seen a stark contrast recently by attending two different conventions. So the first convention I attended was Icon in Sydney, which I've done several years in the past. And the venue that we use for that is a boarding school. Uh, and it's during the school holidays, so none of the students are actually boarding there. And so we get all the various classrooms. And each game is assigned a single classroom. So, yeah, if a group, if, if a group next door gets particularly loud, there will be some disturbance. But generally speaking, you've got a pretty private environment to run your game. Uh, okay, then there is the next week. I went along to Gamination Con in Dallas, which pretty much had one large room uh, with about fifteen or so tables in that room. And so, you know, you're literally playing your game, and not two feet away from you is another person who is playing a different game at a different table. Uh, and it's loud. Um, role players, when they get excited, sometimes shout. No, you know. Um, Plastic dice tacking Next against... Next thing you're going to sell me, there was some <laughs> body odour in that room. <laughs> it wasn't too bad. The Game of Funk was not too bad, actually. Okay. Uh, but yeah, plastic dice tacking against wooden tables can be quite loud as well. Uh, and this is coming from somebody... like I, I like to write games that have atmosphere in it. I, I ran my Dark Heresy game, which I originally wrote for MacCon 2014 at uh, Game Nation Con. And, and that game is designed to have a... A horror element to it, you know, like, like some of the horror in it is body horror as such, you know, like it's in terms of the the, the disgusting nature of some things or the, the the wrongness of some things, but other times it is you know stalking through darkened corridors on a starship, you know, with with unusual technology as such, and um, I like to try and create an evocative atmosphere around that. And is that necessarily something that's easy to do in a room with fifty other gamers? some of which might be playing Cards Against Humanity or Ticket to Ride or, you know, something else and, and you know, getting excited by that or whatever, uh, Ticket to Ride to be example because last time I played that, nobody said a word. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, you, you get the idea, basically, that that, that, that may impact that, that environment, that, that may impact the atmosphere. So that's where this topic has come from, really. I, I wanted to talk about if you do want to try and create the atmosphere, not just through what you say, or describe in your game, but also in the environment that you you run your game in. What's some advice for that? Okay. Um, because yeah, certainly, just that little contrast between doing it in a private room versus doing it in a hall had a big impact on the ability to convey atmosphere in the game. Now, Mike, your eye roll previously. Would you care to explain that to the audience? Candles and mood lighting in general is a terrible idea for any game that relies upon you reading small words on a piece of white paper. It just doesn't work. <laughs> so, 
with your lighting, make sure that it's still good enough to actually read whatever you're doing. And with candles, keep them out of reach of everyone because they will play with candles. They will spill wax everywhere and burn their fingers and just generally not pay attention to anything other than playing with candles. I need to tell a quick story here. And, and, and you all know this one, but this is, this is more for the sake of our audience. Uh, this is one of... I think this is, might even be my first role-playing experience with you, Mike, was when we, when we played White, White Wolf's Werewolf game. Yeah. Um, in at our friend, our old friend David's house, and now Australian houses don't have basements, but this house had a basement. It was just the way the house was constructed. It had a basement, you know, a little uninsulated part of the building, uh, and that was the gaming space, you know, and it was also where the laundry was, uh, and you know, we we'd, we'd gone down to play this, you know, cathartic. I've just um, remembered this story, <laughs> yes. We've gone down to play this cathartic uh, werewolf game, and we've turned the lights out, and we've got candles. And everyone is hunched around the table, you know, with their carriage sheets in front of them in the in the spare candlelight, and you know, the GM's trying to create this evocative scene. And suddenly, the mother of the person whose house walks you know, is walks downstairs with a load of washing and says, "Oh, this looks cozy. It's like a séance." Yeah. Flicks on the light, and starts sorting out people's underwear into baskets. Yeah, yeah. I remember clearly that everyone just looked at each other and it was, it was shattered. Yeah. So this is the thing: is that that I. Uh, it's one thing to want to add this, um, you know, convey the sense through the atmosphere, but it can sometimes get silly. You know, um, there are certainly people that I would, there are certainly people I role play with even today that I would not try and create an atmosphere filled room around because they would, it, it, it would be lost on them, you know, because they, 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 they want to play a beer and petrols game and have a, have a fun laugh and, you know, candle light and the, and the like is not going to do anything for them. No. Um, but, you know, uh, it depends on the sort of game you want to run. I'll, I'll say one thing about candles in general or about, about, about using lighting or mood lighting for your game. Uh, when I try to run a game, I th- there's a few ways to run games for me. Uh, let's talk about, for example, our Tuesday night group where we currently play Star Wars. Um, I will call for plenty of roles. You know, yeah. they, you know the, the group is doing some research can I find out about blah? You know, worries. Um, make make a you know, underworld role, make a law role, make a perception role, whatever it might be. Um, there's other games I run. An example you see is my Cthulhu game, where I rarely call for roles. You know, I, if if the outcome is a uh, is, is a heavy risk, then yeah, I'll call for a role. Otherwise, you know, like the character's are competent. I'm happy to hand wave that if you know a person is going to a library to do research. I'll describe what they discover, not say, sit there and say, make two library use roles and tell me what your total margin of success is. Uh, which means that for the parts of the game where there aren't a lot of roles required or looking at sheets, then pretend, and, and these are the parts where most of what you're doing is heavily descriptive, is you can use dimmer lighting. But the moment that you go into combat or you go into a sequence in the game that is going to require a lot of roles... Um, like a chase, you know, a, 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 heavy, a montage in the game uh, of things happening then of different skill checks being done, then turn the lights up, you know, turn the lights on, you know, give, give everyone's eyes a rest, you know. I see a lot of I see a lot of role players these days with glasses, and I'm, you know, some of them could be because they ruin their eyes early on by spending a lot of time in, in darkened basements playing role-playing games, looking at... at uh, going back to the old D&D dice, you had to actually colour in with a crayon, had to colour in the the, um, the numbers on there, otherwise you couldn't see the numbers. Uh, anyway, uh, th- that's my one consideration. It depends on the sort of game you want to run. The other one, the other big sort of thing that people do to create atmosphere is going to be obviously music. Yeah. Uh, and there are a couple of difficulties I've found with, with picking music for games. Uh, first off is uh, looping the music. So um, you've got to work out how will the music sound if it's looped, if, it, if the song ends and restarts, whatever it might be, will that cause some form of distraction? Um, not so much a problem in combat where you have some sort of you know, fast-paced, you know, action-based music as such, but when it comes to you know, more investigative scenes, uh, certainly yeah, that's, that's a consideration. Uh, I've looked particularly... I, I like um, original soundtrack CDs a lot of the time. Um, you know, so artists like, for example, James Horner, who did the Aliens um, ones, that, that, that sort of good horror sound effects as such. 
uh, you know, um, you look, look at any of the major sort of film uh, composers, and you'll be able to find a whole bunch of original soundtracks that you can potentially use for various things in games. Uh, one thing, it depends on how the group is and what the game is. Like, if you start pulling out, you know, John Williams' Star Wars soundtrack for a non-Star Wars-based game, everyone's going to suddenly realise what the music is, and, and that, that in itself will be a distraction. But uh, in general, yeah, un- understated environmental music, I think, is a good one. And also, um, I've had a lot of success recently, especially through Roll20, with websites that do background audio. So tabletop audio is a good example. Sirenscape is another fantastic example. I think we've mentioned these on the show before as well. But yep. uh, certainly you can create your own uh, backing tracks. You know, So you can almost create like a, a scene as such. Like this is you know, the streets of the hive as such and, and put together various sounds. It depends how clever you are with yep. various programs to combine and have sounds looped in the background. There used to be a program, I'm not sure if it's around still, called RPG Deck that would allow you to basically have one computer which played audio that was controlled by another computer. So you could sort of queue up the audio on your main little like, tablet PC or whatever and the other computer would sort of play the audio too. But I think it might in, be... In the background, yeah. Yeah, that's it. So, yeah, I think sound is, a, is another big part. Um, Personally, I think the yeah. most important thing is limit distractions. Yeah. If you have a cat, keep it out of the room. If you have people who are going to be coming and going, try and do it in a room where they're not going to be coming and going into... If there's going to be a pizza delivered, have it done in a break. Don't try and have it done while the game's going. Um, if people need to go and get snacks or drinks, do it in breaks. Don't limit the amount of and, yeah. limit the amount of distractions and disruptions to the game. Yeah, that, I mean, 40k is a very evocative setting, and the longer you can keep that sort of the the player's mind in the game, the more impact that's going to have. Now. Some gamers will say, and I can certainly say this, that there are some distractions that you cannot eliminate. And the classic one I always use is my children. Yeah. If I'm running a game while my children are awake, that they will have an impact on the game in some respect. I can put Frozen on in the back room for them. They will still come in and tell me that the DVD is finished and they want, they want Toy Story on now. No, no, um, no, no. Yeah. See, there's two words you need to learn. Yeah. Balding school. <laughs> uh, what I was getting at is that if you know there are some distractions that you can't avoid... Yeah. Then make sure you plan your gaming around that. Yes. So don't plan for the cathartic, evocative experience on a day that your kids are going to be walking and constantly asking you to blow their nose. Yeah. You know, plan that for when they're in bed or plan a game which is much more loose and in style and freeform. Yeah. You know, you get that sort of idea. Certainly when we've been playing Star Wars in the past, you know, my kids would be getting up at night time and had to keep going to the step to put them back back to bed again and... That didn't really disrupt the game because the game wasn't that sort of heavy Another, role-playing experience. Yeah, another thing with limiting distractions, and I know this is more difficult now than it ever used to be, yep. is if you are going to be running a, a heavy game, yep. request that people don't be on their mobile phones. Yeah, it's, this is a really tough one. Like I, I, I sit there so often and people talk about the importance of Living mobile phone distractions in role-playing games. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's that's great. And then I sit in other people's games going, oh, I'm playing on my mobile phone, you know. I'm... <laughs> I, I've even found, I mean, I've even found myself running games where, like, the group's having a conversation and I've actually, like, I'm still listening to the group's role-playing, but I've also, like, looked, started looking at my phone or something at the same time, yeah. I mean, the one thing, the one thing that does happen in some of my games that does piss me off is people playing mobile phone game apps. Yeah, you know, it's like it's one thing to be quickly checking your Facebook email. Another thing to actually like start playing a different game from the one you're currently participating yeah, in. Yeah, I, I have to agree with that, and I think that really, it's a common courtesy rule: if you need to check your messages or answer your phone or something like that, that's okay. If you're going to be having a conversation with another random person or playing a game because your energy has just got to full, and you know, your phone buzzed at you to let you know, maybe. Save that for later. Yeah. One of the many breaks that will be had. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Final bit of advice I would give is to try and push as much of the system-heavy stuff in the game to the beginning or the end. So, especially things like expending experience points. You know, you don't want people stopping to suddenly pick up experience charts in the middle of the game session because... I've got I might have enough points to buy the skill that we need. But even then, like I try to make sure that my my investigation rolling stuff or my combat encounters are front end or back end loaded. Yeah. So the middle of the game can really be more about the the setting, the scenery, the what what's actually going on, the interactions with NPCs. 
I personally don't mind having a combat in the middle yeah. at the same time as people are dealing with food. Because not everyone has to be heavily involved during a combat, yeah, particularly. It does give people a break as such. It gives people a break. They can go to the bathroom while someone's clobbering something else. As long as they're not going to be out there for 15 minutes while everyone else is waiting for their turn. Yeah. Um, well, you can usually tell if they pick up the mobile phone or if they go to the bathroom or not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's all pretty simple stuff. And I, I think you're right about the experience as well. That probably a good rule of thumb is that at some point in the game you should say, okay, from this point on, no more spending experience until the end of the session. Because yeah. otherwise people are constantly picking up books and flicking and looking at charts and trying to work out what they want to get. Yeah. You just give me an idea as well, just sort of sideways thing about a future uh, future discussion. We should talk at some point about uh, portraying different NPCs, how to give your NPCs a different feeling so people recognise who they're interacting with, that sort of thing. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's all. That's, all, that's part of the you know, the storytelling skill, but it's different from the atmosphere. So. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, try things out. See what works for your group. Don't be upset if... Yeah, you know, certain things don't work with certain groups. Yeah, yeah. You know, there, are, I've long since discovered that there are some things I'm just not going to bother trying with certain groups that I run for, and I've accepted that, and I'll do different things with different groups as well. And yeah. and sometimes I think you know there are people in that group that would really probably like that, but they also probably wouldn't appreciate it if they if it was being done the game they were playing and somebody else in the group was stuffing it up. Yeah. So, yeah, play play play, play to the lowest common denominator. <laughs> um, unfortunately, yes. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's get on to closing out the show. Okay. All astropaths to the choir chamber. Message incoming. Alright, as the last thing in the show, we normally talk about any reviews that we received, which we haven't this fortnight, uh, or any comments that we've received, which we have had one, uh, from our friend Matt. And Matt asked the question via email, uh, there's lots of stories in the 40k universe about the Emperor uh, during the Great Crusade finding all of the lost Primarchs. Yeah. Are there any stories where the Emperor came across somebody who was you know, very powerful or had united the entire world and thought, hey, this guy must be one of my Primarchs. And it turns out it wasn't. It was just an exceptional individual. Now, first off, I couldn't think of any stories that I'd previously read related to that. And I did do a bit of research and I couldn't nah. see any examples of that. You know, I, I think there is a certain amount of fanboyism by the writers to the point that, you know, how could anyone be as fantastic as a Primarch? Primarchs are just fantastic. Yeah, it is a bit like that. It's like... It always reminds me of every time one of those TV shows come on about aliens built the pyramids or aliens did this. It, it's like, oh, must have been aliens because a human, they can't even work out how to rub two sticks together without aliens showing them how to make fire. Yeah. You know, it, it's this idea that normal people are completely incapable of anything compared to anyone else. And no, there are no, I, I can't think of off the top of my head of any stories about that, but there should have been. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, there should have been worlds where they were united by someone who was just a great person. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly stories of uh, Primarchs underperforming. <laughs> yeah, Angron. Angron. Angron didn't unite his whole world. I mean, he, look, he, he, he was he, the he, only one who didn't. Yeah, he, unite he, his he, whole world. he dominated in the arena as such. You know, but, oh, yeah, uh, he, you know he, he never expired. never aspired to more than that. So yeah, he did. He, he led a slave rebellion, which was just about to get butchered. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so there are, and, and the emperor still recognised him as a primarch. So, yeah. <laughs> despite the fact he hadn't conquered his world, but yeah, so probably I'd say the right now the answer is no to that one. But uh, I appreciate the question anyway. Yeah. Uh, if you do want to ask us a question, you can do through sorry, through many means. Our website is www.grimdartpodcast.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com/grimdartpodcast. Our Google Plus page is plus.google.com/plus/grimdartpodcast. Uh, we tweet. Rarely through at Grimdart Podcast. Our email is show at grimdartpodcast.com. And don't forget through our website, you can also follow the links to uh, uh, leave us a voicemail on the right hand side of the page or the Drive to RPG link on the left hand side where you can buy your PDF books and also support the show at the same time. So, next episode is episode 65, which is an only war episode. Um, I haven't got that many notes about the next episode, I'm afraid. The sort of all this travel has really killed my ability to. To pre-plan, I do know that the I'd planned to review the Department of Munitorium Handbook since we reviewed the Imperial Infantry Uplifting Primer previously. But the rest of the show, we've done all the careers now. So, what do you think, Mike? We could either do the advanced careers from Hammer of the Emperor, assuming humanity, because they are 
quite, especially the ones from from the first one, are quite open ended. They, they really for any career. Yep. Or else we could do a round on the various uh, uh, pre created regiments and such, like similar to what we've done with the, with I, the I chapters. Think, I think the pre created regiments. Yep. Or regimental types. Okay. Yeah. So possible. I, I will let the listeners decide. Yeah. If you if you've got any thoughts on what you would like us to know, only war shows, whether it's going to be coming off the advanced specialties, um, the uh, uh, the different regiment types or the regiments themselves, feel free to post it on our on our Facebook or on our Google Plus page sometime in the next two weeks, and we'll we'll take all that feedback on board before we write the next show. Okay. And uh, other than that. We look forward to running a show for you again then. Hope you had a good time listening. Mike, thank you for your uh, participation. It was good to have you back. You're welcome. We, we missed you two weeks ago in Dallas. Yeah, and, yeah I'm uh, sure you did. Uh, we managed, I mean, I've got, I've got to be in Munich next week for a week, and then I've got to be back in the US two weeks after that, so we'll have a very tight window to record the next show. But I, I We shouldn't have any trouble with that. Yeah, that should be all right. All right, we will catch you then. This podcast is not endorsed by or affiliated with Games Workshop or Fantasy Flight Games. Warhammer 40,000, Dark Heresy, Rogue Trader, Death Watch, Black Crusade, Only War, Eternal Crusade, and all associated properties are trademark and or copyright of Games Workshop Limited. Fantasy Flight Games is a trademark of Fantasy Flight Publishing Inc. All other materials are trademark and or copyright of their respective owners. All original content is copyright of the Grimdark Podcast. All rights are reserved by their respective owners. Our theme music comes from Mibio's Media Gallery. Music.mibio.com.